up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, we'll talk about the impact of divorce on children. The other piece that is um, incredibly important is really to reduce conflict between parents. Um, that's actually one of their most robust predictors of maladjustment for kids is conflict. Then we'll learn about a study from Blue Cross and Blue Shield about medication adherence that shows lots of room for improvement in following doctors' prescription orders. If you're supposed to take it on an empty stomach and you just ate a hamburger, uh, you know, that you could have a, a lesser or reduced benefit from that medicine. And we'll explore a new project that allows people at the end of life to create videos for their loved ones. There's so much technology and there's so much possibilities of us being able to capture those important things that they want to be able to share. We'll have all that and a visit from our healing muse right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, medicine, and science with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. On this week's show, a pharmacist will explain why it can be dangerous not to follow your medication prescription. Then, a social worker will tell about a video project for people at the end of life. But first, we'll talk with a doctoral candidate in psychology about the impact of divorce on children. Statistics vary, but some say as many as half of marriages in the U.S. will end in divorce. The turmoil created when people who loved each other split is magnified when children are involved. With me today is Carrie O'Hara, a doctoral candidate doing an internship in clinical psychology at Upstate. Thank you for taking the time to be here and talk about this. Absolutely. Thank you for having me. So how do you study and uh, understand the impact of parental divorce on children? Um, that's a really great question. It's, this is a topic that's been studied for um, several decades now. And so I think our approaches have changed a little bit over time, clearly. Um, but in terms of the theoretical frameworks that really underlie all of that research, I think that has also varied over time and, um, you know, gotten more succinct. But generally speaking, um, we sort of understand the process of divorce on kids from a general stress perspective, how stressful it is for them. Um, so there's one particular framework um, that uh, has a very descriptive title, which is called Divorce Stress Adjustment Model. Um, and that just really means that we view divorce, um, particularly when we're thinking about the impact on kids, as really a process as opposed to an event um, that, that often creates, I would say, pretty unavoidable stress on families, even if it's temporary or even if it is accompanied by some positive aspects. Um, but it really um, depends on the extent to which those stressors that come along with those changes for a family um, overwhelm a child's capacity to cope. Now, when you say child, um, different ages must respond differently to a divorce. Or yeah, is there a... um, that's that's a really good question. And I think the, the research is pretty nuanced on that. Um, it depends a lot on what you're looking at, what kind of outcomes you're looking at. So if you think about the developmental tasks for kids, um, 
that's going to at different ages you know like for instance if a if you've got a teenager and they have to uh, switch schools or they're switching you know sports teams or groups of friends that might be, have a more impact on their social functioning for instance um, compared to a younger child where maybe peer groups aren't quite as important developmentally okay um, but each age will have different issues I think so yeah I think there's different um there's different impacts depending on the age. Younger kids, um, so maybe you know five, six years old, just developmentally they tend to be more, um, I guess, egocentric, where they kind of see everything as impacting them uh, themselves, and so they might be more likely to uh, think about the divorce as their fault. They might be blaming themselves more. They may not have the cognitive capacities to think about all the different factors that might have been involved. They just sort of jump to the conclusion that oh, it must be my fault. Um, so I think it just depends on, on development and, and what kids are working on at different ages. So you've mentioned some, but what are, what are some more problems that children of divorce typically experience during the divorce and after? Mm-hmm. Um, so that, I, guess, I think, is a complex question because it really cuts across areas of functioning. So divorce is particularly, uh, the impact of divorce on kids is one of the things that I find interesting to study, um, but it also is complex because it's not like we're looking at one particular disorder, um, like depression or anxiety. These kids tend to have, the kids who do have maladjustment problems, um, it tends to cut across areas of their life. Um, so problems at home, problems at school, with friends. Um, it's one of those things that uh, manifests itself in lots of different ways. And for long term? Um, for most kids, the good news, I think the really good news that often gets lost, um, when we're talking about this particular topic is that by and large, most kids are very resilient. Um, so the best estimates that we have from the literature are that usually, um, right around about a quarter of kids, maybe 25% to 30% of kids tend to have long-term problems. And again, when I say problems, I use that term because it's an umbrella term. We, they're, they're going to have different types of problems depending on their life circumstances. Um, so the, the overwhelming majority of kids are very resilient and they, and they do really well. Um, but for those kids that do have problems after, um, you know, we're looking at not a, not a small group, but, but definitely the minority. Okay. Well, um, interventions are often recommended for families experiencing divorce. Why do you think that's important? Yeah. Um, you know, this is a, a topic that's been studied for, as I said, lots of decades. And I think what it comes down to is that we have pretty reliable and consistent evidence now that there is a small, you know, albeit small, but a, a subset of kids who do go on to have problems functioning after. Um, and so I think the the risk, you know, we think about it as a risk factor. It certainly doesn't determine um, that kids are going to have issues, but you think about it as a risk factor that's pretty well established um and then just the prevalence i mean as you mentioned in your intro um you know about 50 percent of divorces give or take depending on the statistics um end in divorce and so that translates to lots of kids having this experience during childhood so interventions could be um counselors psychologists visits group therapy yeah yeah a variety of things a variety of things yep um Across the country, there's been lots of different things um, implemented um, from, you know, you've ha- you have uh, support groups at, in schools these days. Um, oftentimes when parents go through the court system to 
um, settle their divorce. In many jurisdictions, they're mandated to go to programs that tell them about the impact of divorce. Um, and then there are there are psychologists that um, that work with these families. I think from my perspective, um, what a lot of the work that I'm trying to do is more from a prevention standpoint. If we think about divorce as a risk factor, then perhaps we should have more, um, you know, programs that are available for families to to uh, take advantage of as they're going through the process to try to mitigate some of those outcomes. For so kids. families, parents, and children yep. t- together or separately? Often separately. Um, so the the programs that have some empirical support that I'm familiar with um, are usually separate. So there's parenting, um, you know, focused programs, and then there's youth focused programs. Okay. So what are uh, what are the things, sort of the main ingredients that you think are f- are the most effective for parent level mm-hmm. interventions? So one of the most, a, a couple of things. I think a a really important thing when it comes to intervening at a parent level is that we know effective parenting is one of the mo- the biggest protective factors for kids. So often what hap- what often what can happen during a divorce is that parents um, sometimes become more lax on their discipline. Um, like if they feel guilty, for instance, they might be giving in to the kids more, not keeping rules up, not having that structure that is really important for kids. Um, and then they also may not be as available to be responsive to their kids and be warm and, and be there for them emotionally because, you know, they're dealing with their own um, struggles. And so the, I'd say the main ingredients of the empirically supported programs that we have now uh, really focus in on, on positive parenting. So both warmth um, and, and discipline, um, you know, effective discipline practices. And then the other piece of that is the parent-child relationship is so important. Um, that can be a real big buffer for kids, any stressful life event, but this one not excluded. Um, so are these are parenting, do they do both spouses go together? Because I mean, if you're talking about two people who are splitting up and maybe can't stand to be near each other, yes. and you're trying to get them on the same page right. with how to raise their child or be, you know, do what's best for their child. Yeah, that's gonna be a challenge. Yes, it is. That's a great question. So um, the other piece that is um, incredibly important is really to reduce conflict between parents. Um, that's actually one of their most robust predictors of maladjustment for kids is conflict. Um, and so for that reason, often, um, as you say, it's better to have them separated. Um, parents can do a lot on their own, and if they can't figure out how to um, you know, be civil with one another, then we might a lot of times people recommend what we call parallel parenting where they're, um, you know, being respectful for one to one another and not speaking poorly about each other to the kids, but they're, you know, doing their own thing and being effective on their own. Okay. All right. This is Upstate's HealthLink on air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Carrie O'Hara, a doctoral candidate doing her internship in clinical psychology at Upstate about divorce and the impact on children. So is there ever a time when parents should stay together for the sake of the children, because we've heard this from time to time. Yes, it's the age-old question. Should we stay together for the kids? Yeah. Will Um, that save the marriage? Yeah, well, so I think um, oftentimes when I've heard this, when I've had this question posed, it's it's more about, you know, worries that this will be really detrimental for the kids, that divorce is so stressful and that they don't want to um, hurt their children. And I would say that, you know, that is a really popular belief. Um, But as many 
things in psychology? Uh, the answer is it depends. Yeah. And it really depends on what I just mentioned a few moments ago, which is conflict. Um, I think to simplify something that's pretty complex, one of the things that I always kind of rely on is thinking about conflict for families. Um, that if parents, you know, if it's if the conflict is going to reduce between the parents, if it's a conflictual marriage and the conflict is going to reduce by them living separately, um, then by all means, I think that's that's better for the that can be better for the children actually. Um, you know, if if conflict's going to continue um, or even get worse as they argue about things like money and visitation, you know, in the courtroom or outside of the courtroom, um, then I would say that it's probably better to you know stay together, pool resources, um, not you know mitigate some of those um, you know extra stressors like having to switch schools and move and those sorts of things for kids. Okay. Well, what about, um, is there anything that you can recommend for friends or family members to, to do to help a family that's going through a divorce? Mm -hmm. Um, yeah, I think, you know, I think again, going back to where we started in terms of the model of thinking about divorce as a really stressful life event for families. Um, some of the same, um, practices can be helpful, like being supportive, you know, listening, um, really not encouraging bashing of one parent in front of the children. That's very stressful for kids and confusing. Um, so I would say, yeah, I think being there, listening, having a place where parents can, um, you know, let, let go of some of their own stresses while protecting their kids from that to other adults. Um, and then just really, supporting the family and supporting the kids, letting the kids know that, um, you know, everybody supports their relationship with both parents because having a child that has to choose between parents is one of the That's biggest sort of the goal, predicaments. It's to be able to get through this so that the child still has a relationship, positive relationship with both. Absolutely. So, yes. Okay. Have you um, seen examples of families that have split up and then the children have thrived and gone on and done well do you see that often yeah yeah I think you know um again it kind of comes down to divorce itself is not harmful for kids it's really about how parents go about navigating um the divorce that can potentially pose risk for kids um so as I said before if you know if conflict actually goes down if two parents are able to get along better and have more of a business relationship and you know be nice to one another and um when they're not married then and show kids that you can, you know, be separated from somebody but still be respectful and resolve conflict and those sorts of things, then I think that that can actually be pretty healthy for kids. If uh, a couple is planning to split up, at what point should they tell the kids? Mm. Um, should the kids come home and it's already happened, one of them's moved out, or should the kids be part of that before before it happens yeah that's a great question I think that's a it's a tricky balance and it's something that a lot of parents fret about because you know on one hand you you don't want to tell kids all the nitty-gritty details they don't need to know um, all of that that can be overwhelming and stressful but on the other hand it's their life and so they deserve to know the truth and so I guess um, what I would say is a developmentally appropriate truth um, and, and not lying to kids because kids are very perceptive. Um, parents often think that they, you know, fight behind closed doors and kids don't know what's going on. And nine times out of ten, that's just not true. Um, and so I would say being upfront and honest with kids without overwhelming them with 
with um, details that is, that are not developmentally appropriate. That they don't need. Yeah. Okay. Well, interesting. Well, thank you for being here. I appreciate you taking the time to come talk about this. Absolutely. Um, my guest has been psychology doctoral candidate Carrie O'Hara. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. study on medication adherence shows lots of room for improvement. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Medical University. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Luke Probst, the Director of Pharmacy at Upstate University Hospital, is here to talk with me today about a recent report from Excellus Blue Cross Blue Shield that showed four out of ten people do not take their medications as prescribed. Thanks for being here to talk about this. Hi, Amber. Thanks for having me. So the technical term they use is medication adherence. What does that mean? So adherence is a term that technically uh, describes the act of a patient filling or refilling a prescription. Um, in, in some realms, folks may hear the term compliance, uh, which is similar, but compliance often refers to the act of taking medications as prescribed or taking their medications on schedule. Uh -huh. So uh, very often those terms are, are used interchangeably, but there are nuanced differences between them. And they're both important. I mean, adherence, Absolutely. filling it, actually filling the prescription, and then complying by taking it. Correct. Yeah. So and it taking really is, it the right way. Right. It really is a two-step process. Uh, you know, a, a prescriber who chooses to use a medication in a patient uh, needs to get that patient to to get the medicine. Uh, that's the adherence part of of getting the medication uh, filled. Uh, and then the equally important element is for the patient to take it as prescribed. So what are some reasons why people would not, I mean, if they get a prescription from a, a doctor, would they just not fill it because they can't afford it? Or are there other reasons? Sure. There certainly are a variety of reasons why uh, patients may be non-adherent. Uh, and some of that may have to do with affordability. Um, it could involve their, their own health beliefs or, or what we call health literacy, uh, which really describes their understanding or lack of understanding of the importance of that medication and the importance of taking it properly. So the doctor may prescribe something, but for whatever reason, the patient doesn't leave understanding really what the drug is supposed to do or Correct. how important it is. Correct. Or, or they may feel that, well, gee, I'm, I felt... Uh, unwell, and so I'm taking this medicine in the short term, but now that I'm feeling better, I really don't see the benefit of it, and I don't think it's important for me to take it. And, and that really goes to the idea of their understanding uh, or health literacy, as we call it. Okay. All right. So there are certainly other, other issues that can contribute 
patients uh, may be forgetful, and whether that relates to um, their their condition uh, associated with dementia or or Alzheimer's disease, or it's just uh, and any one of us who live our, our busy days that forget to take their their medicines at a regular time of day, um, that that has an impact as well. Um, there are certainly the cost elements, which we could spend hours talking about in the current uh, healthcare environment, how expensive some medications are, and, and that often forces patients to choose between one medication or another, or to choose between taking their medication and having food on the table. Now, what about um, some medications have sort of um, instructions on how to take them, like mm-hmm. take them with food or take them without food or don't take them... Uh, swallow them, don't chew them, or things like that. Is do you right. do you run into problems with people not following precisely how to take it, or does that matter as much? Um, all of those things do matter, and I think a lot of that confusion may come with uh, what is often an information overload situation. If if you talk about patients going from a hospital setting back to home, uh, they're inundated with instructions on how to manage their condition that not only includes medications but all other aspects of their daily living. Uh, if you're talking about a patient who's who's at home and who goes to the pharmacy to get a prescription filled for the first time, they'll get a several-page leaflet and their prescription bottle will contain instructions with a number of stickers on them. And, and that in and of itself sometimes creates an information overload that will just be confusing enough to, um, you know, cause the patient not to be mindful of those things. Uh, and and some of those bits of information are helpful elements of guidance, and others are very critical elements of, of how to take the medication. Uh, crushing and chewing for a, uh, a product that has a, a long release, um, an extended release formulation, if you crush or chew that, that, that could have detrimental effects and it could also uh, not give you the benefit that not you're work. expecting. Not right. work the way right. you're supposed to. Or if yeah. you're supposed to take it on an empty stomach and you just ate a hamburger, uh, you know, that you could have a, a lesser or a reduced benefit from that medicine. Um, other elements of that, uh, of those instructions may say, oh, may cause dizziness or may, uh, you know, may cause this, that, or the other thing. Uh, sometimes that's helpful information for a patient to understand, uh, but some of those things are really important. So problems can range from very serious mm-hmm. by taking or not taking the medicine properly. W- what about, um, you go back to your doctor a month later, they may, if, if you're not taking the medication properly, they may not understand whether it's working or may increase the dosage or take try something different right, and not realize that you're not really taking it the way you're supposed to. Exactly. And, you know, that's a challenge for the the providers uh, as well as for the patients to, to be able to um, recognize and, and for the patient to, to be able to be honest with their provider about, well, gee, I, I have missed this many doses uh, in, in the past month or, or in, you know, since our last visit. Uh, and it's important for the prescriber to ask those questions as well and not to assume that uh, every patient is taking every medicine exactly the way uh, they've intended it to be taken. Um, the perfect example of that is is blood pressure medicines. If a patient goes back to see their, their provider for blood pressure control and their blood pressure is higher than it's, it's desired to be, 
a knee-jerk response might be, well, let's give more medicine, increase the dose, or add another medicine. Uh, but if there's a realization uh, it, through that conversation that the patient says, well, gee, I've, I've had trouble taking the medicine because I couldn't afford it, and then I keep forgetting, that could change someone's approach to how they're going to handle the next step. Uh, in, sure. in a good situation, the provider may say, well, let's talk through this and, and you know, help you to understand the importance of it and, and maybe uh, give it another period of time, a, a week or a month, before we make changes to your therapy if we can get you to be more adherent to your regimen. Okay. Well, who is it? Is it mostly the patient? I mean, who gets the blame for medication adherence problems? Because the CDC says that about half the total U.S. population and 90% of adults age 60 or older are taking at least one prescription drug. So there's mm -hmm. a lot of potential out there yeah. for there to be some problems. Is it is it the fault of the person taking the medicine? Well, I'd like to think it's not a blame or a fault issue, uh, but I'd like many other aspects of healthcare, it's a team approach. And uh, the team approach in this situation would be the, the provider choosing a, a medication that is likely that the patient would take from, uh, from an, an affordability perspective and from an ease of, of their uh, regimen perspective, uh, choosing a medicine that they might only have to take once a day instead of something that they would have to take four times a day. Uh, it's it has a burden on the pharmacist to be sure that that patient is adequately counseled and educated about their medication, especially at the point of starting therapy, but also continuing along every time that that patient is seen to reinforce the importance of, of being compliant with taking their medications. And mm -hmm. lastly, the patient needs to have some responsibility for their own health by finding ways to to be as compliant with their prescribed regimen as they can. All right. This is Upstate's Health Link on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Luke Probst. He's the director of pharmacy at Upstate. So the, the Blue Cross Blue Shield survey that was uh, done recently showed that nine out of 10 Upstate New York adults believe taking medications as prescribed is very or extremely important. And yet four out of 10 missed one or more doses of medications that they were prescribed. So, um, what should people do as soon as they realize they've missed a dose of their medicine? That's a difficult question to answer as, as a universal response, but I think a few take-home messages would be that if they self-identify that they haven't been taking their medications as they should, uh, they should do whatever they can to get back on track to, to be compliant with their regimen as soon as they can. Um, if, and it would depend on the medication in question as to whether they should call the doctor or the prescriber back to, to you know, explain that to them, um, to identify, does that mean I should stop taking it, or we may have to change therapies, or does this just mean, well, we may have to add a little bit more time to our expectations of getting you to the next step in wellness. Okay. Uh, there are always concerns about, you know, if you miss uh, a dose of a medication uh, for a couple of days, you generally don't want to triple up on, on your, your next day's medication to make up for lost time. Uh, all of those are very specific to each medication and should really be done in consultation with either, either the pharmacist or, or the prescriber themselves. Okay. What if you're taking a new medication and um, you, you're getting some side effects that you assume are side effects mm -hmm. of the medication um, that you don't like? What, what do you 
what should you do about that? I'm assuming the answer isn't stop taking the medicine. Correct. But- well, you know, in some rare cases, that may be the case. But in the same breath, the answer would also be contact your prescriber to discuss that. Um, I, I think the uh, issue of what the nature of the side effect is, is a, is a significant uh, factor in, in who you call next or what you do next. Okay. Uh, if, if you're getting upset stomach from something or, you know, you're feeling a little uh, dizzy, you can do some things that uh, might mitigate that. Um, or you can speak to your pharmacist about that to determine <clears throat> what alternative choices you, you might be able to take. Uh, if, if you're having uh, seizures from something or, or if you're having this severe full body rash, uh, clearly that's, that's an that's issue that right. needs to be attended to, uh, you know, very promptly. Okay. Now, um, what should people do if cost is an issue? If you're a patient and your doctor wants you mm-hmm. to take this particular drug and you know that you really can't afford that, but it's sort of awkward or embarrassing... Yeah. I mean, what can you do? That's that is certainly a challenge, and it's becoming more of a challenge uh, with every passing year. Uh, I, I think a, a few elements uh, would would be important. One would be honesty with your provider to to explain to them whether you do or don't have either the proper prescription insurance to cover that or uh, the the financial uh, availability to to cover that if it's an out of pocket expense. Um, and, and so having that honest conversation with your provider is an important step. There are some opportunities, as you might see on television commercials these days, of, of certain uh, pharmaceutical companies or certain specific drugs having patient support programs that may help a patient to offset their burden of cost for a given medication. And you could ask your provider, you could ask your pharmacist uh, about some of those resources to identify potential uh, mechanisms of getting that support. Okay. Uh, a third option would be to really have that conversation uh, and to help to identify, is there another medication that is similar enough to what the prescriber wanted to use in the first place, but less expensive, say, as a generic, uh, that would be more fiscally palatable to the patient? Uh, and that's that changes quite a bit in terms of what is a generic and which... Yes. which schedule they're listed on or whatever. So Correct. Okay. Yeah. Um, well, do you have some suggestions for ways people can remember? Because like you mentioned, I mean, we're, we're busy. It's not that, I mean, maybe we were forgetful too, but, mm. you know, in a hectic world, um, it can be difficult to remember to take. Absolutely. And so. I'll, I'll be the first to admit that <laughs> I have a little challenge taking my own medicine once a day. And, uh, and I imagine that there are many more patients taking far more uh, medications than that, far more often during the day. So it is a challenge. I think the, the key piece is to establish a habit as much as you can. And that habit can be as simple as taking your morning medicine immediately before or after you brush your teeth or to somehow associate the taking of a medication with an already established habit that's ingrained in your lifestyle. Okay. There are certainly uh, technological tools that can be used uh, in this day and age of of smartphones and applications. There are probably several dozen apps uh, available for free or low cost that would help you to establish what your medication regimen is and the application can send you a an alarm, an alert, a text message to take your medication at one or more times of the day. 
And okay. it can also help to reinforce you to uh, document that you've taken your medication. A, that'll stop the alarm from going off. And B, it'll document your, your uh, compliance with that medication. And that may be used as an internal way of reinforcing yourself to look back and say, wow, I've, I've taken my medicine 28 out of the past 30 days. Good on me. Or you might be able to share that with your prescriber at the next appointment to demonstrate that you've been compliant with your medicine so that if there is a consideration that they may need to increase your dose or add to your therapy, you can at least validate with your provider, hey, I've been really compliant with this. Look at how well I've done. Oh, neat. So part of it is the the self-reinforcing approach to making uh, yourself aware and, and congratulating yourself for doing that. The other element is to create a habit that you can assign to that process. Now, what about those pill boxes that are like day of the week? Sure. Um, so for someone who's taking multiple medications, mm-hmm. does that, I mean, because it could be onerous to have to open seven different bottles you right. know, each morning or each evening. Um, is that are those generally recommended? Those can certainly be helpful under the right set of circumstances. I think if you're a patient who needs to take uh, one or two pills in the morning, you can easily do that with the the seven day a week minder. But if you have to take three pills in the morning, two at noon, one in the afternoon, and four at night, you don't want to throw. 10 pills of four different varieties into a single box over the course of the day because the risk of, of confusing yourself and, and having medication error uh, might be greater. That being said, there are certainly more complex uh, pill containers that will show you three or four times a, a day mm-hmm. that you can break out your daily supply into. So again, it really goes back to habit and your ability to, to reinforce that habit using that reminder. Uh, I think it's a great thing for someone who only has a, a few pills a day, especially a once-a-day regimen. Well, thank you. It's very good information. I appreciate oh, you thanks. being here. My guest has been Upstate Director of Pharmacy, Luke Probst. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next up, sharing a final message after death on Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Medical University, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. With me today from the Upstate Cancer Center is Chevelle Jones-Moore. She's a social worker who will talk with me about palliative care and a new program she's involved with called Sharing Life. Welcome, Chevelle. Thank you. Thanks for being here. Thank you. So uh, tell us what palliative care is. 
Palliative care, I will break down into like three kind of areas. One of which is it's a medical care model where people who are experiencing a serious illness can receive um, guidance and treatment. And secondly, it's provided by a number of providers that's not exclusive to the doctors, the nurses, social work, but it's a team framework where we try to cover a number of things where patients um, will need guidance with. And thirdly, it's a model that kind of puts the patient as the leader. They um, kind of look at what their goals are for themselves. And we take that as a lead and we follow them. And we just provide a network of support from that point of view. So the patient may have a goal of um, pain control is sort of their priority, or they may have a goal of, I don't know. Correct. One of the things with palliative care is that when you, when a person is diagnosed with a serious illness, um, there's a number of things that are not really um, looked at on a daily basis from just like as if it was just a general illness. Whereas with a serious illness, you're looking at long-term, you're looking at something that will progress over a period of time. Um, so we basically try to provide a support for them to be able to live life till its fullest, recognizing and realizing that this is something that they're going to be dealing with day in and day out. And based on sort of the patient's view of what living life to the fullest means. Correct. Okay. Now, um, we've also heard the term hospice. Is that different than palliative care? Clearly. Um, with palliative care, you can enter into this sort of care at any point in time once you realize you have or once a person has been identified as having a serious illness. Whereas with hospice, it really focuses in on the specific realm of care um, at the end of life. Okay. So with hospice, you may be looking at someone who has like a year to six months, mainly six months they look at. Whereas palliative care, you don't have to be at a place where you're um, at the end of life at all. Okay. Um, you're just dealing with an illness that really could use... Um, where patients can really use additional assistance with just coping and developing um, new forms and levels of just living okay. to manage symptoms that um, result as, a, um, as an outcome of the illness that they are experiencing. Now, is this um, just for adult patients, or is this would children ever be? part of palliative care? We have at our cancer center, we have a palliative care program also for um, pediatric populations. Um, so you can enter palliative care 
services at any point, at any age. The program that I'm specifically involved in right now that um, we've implemented this year is focused in on our adult population. The Sharing Life program? Is that what you're talking about? or No, the palliative care. Oh, palliative we, care. Have okay. a, we have an adult um, ambulatory palliative care program that was implemented this year. Our pediatric palliative care program has been functioning um, under Dr. Cherick for some time. Oh, gotcha. Mm-hmm. Okay, so now tell me about the Sharing Life program, because that's new, right? Yes, the Sharing Life program actually, it takes me back a little bit of 2015 when I actually had um, a student that was working with me from Syracuse University and her and I had the opportunity of meeting with many of our patients and family members and specifically focused in on oncology at the time and one of the things that I had noticed Um, and speaking with our family members and our patients, is that when they were experiencing um, a diagnosis, especially of oncology with cancer, um, some of the concerns that came up for them were pretty consistent, and one of which was, like, if I don't beat this, if I'm not able to make it through, there's things in my mind that I would want to be able to to share with family members. And that was their concern. It was like, there's information that I would like to share. There's things that I would want to be available to, like as far as like um, a daughter getting married or a child graduating from co- college or high school um, or just grandchildren down the line of wanting to really have them remember them and and to know them. And with what they were experiencing, they were concerned that that wasn't going to be the case. And having talked with a number of patients along that same line in that mind frame, um, I just kept saying, you know what, there's so much technology and there's so much possibilities of us being able to capture those those important things that they wanted to be able to share um, and that's pretty much how um, came about with sharing life is creating an avenue and an environment where patients and their families can get together and within our settings that we provide and allow them to reflect and to develop, as my coworker says, a legacy of information and whatever it is that they feel is important, that they want to make sure that their family members remember and hold on to them, hold on to them. So This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with social worker Chevelle Jones-Moore from the Upstate Cancer Center about the Sharing Life program. So this um, legacy of information, this is done on a, a video? In this particular case, what we we offer is, um, and that's, I think, one of the unique pieces of it, is that, yes, we do try to capture it in video um, framework so that people can kind of remember the voices of their their family member, um, 
you know, just remember certain things. Yes. Just the way they, okay. Yes. And for those um, grandchildren that may have been too young to even remember or even maybe haven't been on the scene, scene at that time, they would be able to kind of get a sense of who that person is based off of what they want to share in that video. But also for um, some individuals that may not want to be captured in video format, there is illustrations and um, literature. Like you can act, we can actually capture what they say and type it up verbatim. Wow. Have you found it um, easy to get people to talk about things that they want their families to to remember or to know after they've gone, have you found it easy to get people to open up? I think that it's on a spectrum. So some patients are definitely like open and they want that I want to do this. Definitely I want to be a part of this. And then it's sometimes challenging for other patients um, to do that. It just depends on the person's personality. And I find that it's probably more challenging. You probably wouldn't find this surprising for some of our um, male patients. It's a, it seems to be a little bit more challenging. They're open, and um, but that emotional piece for some of them is really hard. And so what we what I try to do is say, okay, yes, you could. We can type it up as well. Or we can actually capture what it is that you want to say and take out some of the pieces that we feel that you wouldn't want to reflect. So if they didn't want to reflect their emotions as far as crying in front of a family member, we can take those things out. Interesting. Mm -hmm. um, what are the sorts of stories that you've noticed patients sharing? Is there a theme or are there any similarities? I wouldn't say that they're very similar. I think that for me so far, each one in its own way has been so unique. Um, but just the, I guess the similar component would be is that they want to be remembered. And what they want to be remembered for is totally different. And um, so just really wanting to share um Words of wisdom, I find, is more along the lines for our, our a lot of our male patients. Um, but and, and overall, patients really just want to be able to capture um, who they are and share that with their family members and friends. Yes. So, uh, who uh, is who can request a video, and um, how do they? How do you go about putting it together? So far right now, we've focused in on our palliative care patients, as those patients that are on a palliative care track. Okay. But it is not restricted um, to that population and the, that patient population at all. Um, it's just a matter of being able to accommodate the patients in that time frame. Um, but it's open to patients who are experiencing and living with a serious illness. So they can contact their nurse or their physician about trying to schedule yes, one they of these? Yes, And then is there any cost, or how is it paid for? Right now, there's no cost. And 
between the social work department, which also was considered like the, the transitional care department, as well as um, the cancer center, um, we're basically picking up the cost of that. Okay. Well, thank you. Thank you so much for being here. My guest has been social worker Chevelle Jones-Moore from the Upstate Cancer Center. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's literary and visual arts journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Valerie Wofield makes beautiful sonnets. They are technically intricate and contain worlds of controlled emotion and deep passion. The listener returns to them and is rewarded each time with new understanding. In the last issue of The Muse, Wofield sent us two sonnets linked together united by the speaker who describes an exquisite confinement. Here is Valerie Wolfeld's seclusion. One, restraints. A room painted the color of roses to calm me. No alms for my beggar bowl of palms. Nosegay in the leather cuffs. How tired my arms in the held roses pose. Teared and tied, espaliered, spiraled as stars. Psalm and rosary whispered in the next room over, beads bound, fingers touch at pulse, and little scar held in the leather cuffs like the cut rose without ground, doomed to tideless waters and vase. Cinnabar too bright. I have overdosed on roses, on the mess and mass of roses sugar spun, eaten one by one from lover's fingers. Composure by rose, impossible calm, one dozen roses or a singleton. Every rose dries to a petaled skeleton. What roses my bony wrists in straps have worn. Milieu. A room painted blue as a king's tiled tomb to calm me. Seize the celadon sky on a ming jar. Lay me glazed quartz and copper in this room. Little pearly moonflower, I'll climb the limb of viny air. One blossom open for one night, then closed again in light. Let the ceilings blue prophesy the cue of morning. Timed bitter right, the coffee machine clicks on in the empty milieu. A room the color of new roses did not warm me, and a room of blue ancient as Abusir did not cool me. Little moon, the womb of mother could not hold me. Great heirlooms cracked crystal, mother did not scold me. And if illness is the color of blue and roses, and if cure too is rumored out of fiance blue and reposed roses,
This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. On next week's show, HealthLink on Air takes a look at what killed Guglielmo Marconi, the so-called father of radio. If you missed any of today's show, listen on demand on our website at healthlinkonair.org or find a podcast in iTunes by searching for one word, HealthLink. I'm Amber Smith. Thanks for listening.